Today's reading is taken from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all her money. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took the little girl by her hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Please do uh, come prepared next week to uh, give. The uh, Easter sacrificial offering is a very important annual uh, offering we take up and makes a great deal of difference to uh, what we do in the city. And, uh, and please, uh, please keep in mind that April 29th town hall, that will be a very important time to discuss uh, how we are uh, moving forward with the vision that we uh, raise funds for in the fall. So I really invite you to be there too. Thomas Cranmer was the author of the original Book of Church, Book of Common Prayer, and uh, his Palm Sunday Collect Prayer says, Lord, grant that we may follow the example of Jesus' patience. Lord, grant that we may follow the great example of his patience. Now, why would that be a a Palm Sunday prayer? We'll get back to that at the end of the sermon. But right now, let's look at this. This is an account of of, uh, Jesus' patience. uh, You can't hurry Jesus. He's very, very patient and deliberate. But as we're going to see... The patience of Jesus is always a sore trial of our patience. Always. Let's notice about this, this fascinating account three things. Let's look at the, the delays of Jesus, the lessons those delays teach us, and finally, 
the puzzling weakness of Jesus. The delays of Jesus, the lessons of Jesus, and the puzzling weakness that Jesus experiences in this account. First, the delays. Right away we meet Jairus, the ruler of a synagogue. That means he was the lay president of a synagogue. He would have therefore been a man of great devotion to God, great morality, respectability, probably wealthy, probably very prominent, but he's desperate because his little girl is as good as dead. That's the language he uses is not just that she might die, but that she is about to die. She's going to die unless Jesus comes. But Jesus says yes. And you can imagine, on the one hand, the excitement of Jairus, but on the other hand, you know, if he'd already given up on his daughter, now, now that he realizes there's hope, imagine his insides, how they were churning with fear that they would be too late. So Jesus and Jairus and the disciples are rushing to Jairus' home, and they're followed by a crowd because the crowd wants to see another miracle. And because they're followed by a crowd, uh, they are pressing in upon Jesus, and all of a sudden, Jesus' experience in verse uh, 30, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. It's the first time that word dunamis, dynamite, the word power, uh, is used in the book of Mark. And he experiences a weakness. And, he, and uh, he knows that there's been a healing. And so he stops everything. He stops it. He stops the entourage. He stops the, uh, the, emergency, uh, you know, the emergency truck with all the, the sirens going. Everything stops. And he turns around and he says, I need to find out who, the, who got that healing. And then he stops, and he finds her, and he brings, we're going to talk about this in a second, he brings it out, he has her tell the whole story, he, having discussion. Imagine the nausea of Jairus at this time. Imagine the confusion of the disciples. Anybody who knows, anybody who sees this woman with a chronic problem that's been going on for years and years, and, uh, and realizes in comparison the little girl who's got an acute problem. Now, chronic and acute are two very different things. A chronic problem means that this has been going on. It's a very sad thing, but it's been going on for years. It certainly could wait two more hours. The little girl, though, has an acute problem. She's about to die. And yet Jesus chooses to stop and talk with this woman. This makes no sense. This is absolutely irrational. In fact, it's worse than irrational. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's malpractice. Let's see. Listen, any emergency room doctors who had a woman coming in with a chronic problem and could wait another couple hours, a little girl coming in with an acute problem that she was about to die, treats the woman, little girl dies, you know what happens. Okay. And that's what Jesus is doing. And so Jairus and, and, the, and the disciples are saying to Jesus, what are you doing? Don't you, don't you understand the situation? Hurry, Jesus. Hurry, or it'll be too late. I need help from you now, Jesus. I don't need help from you later. Hurry, Jesus. Hurry, Jesus. But Jesus will not be hurried. And as he's lollygagging around talking with this woman, (laughs) the thing that Jairus was afraid of all along happens. A messenger comes from his house and says, your daughter's dead. If you can imagine how Jairus felt toward Jesus at that moment. But Jesus looks up at him, essentially, and maybe smiles and says, Trust me. Wow. Jesus says, I will not be hurried. It doesn't matter what it looks like. I will not be hurried. Now, the first thing we learn here is God's blessing and God's grace never, almost never seems to operate uh, according to our schedule. 
our sense of time. You know, every, every culture has a different sense of time, you know. That's one of the, one of the problems with uh, weddings uh, that are cross-cultural. You know, one of you is married from a... Uh, if one of you is from a culture where 15 minutes late, 30 minutes late is okay, and another culture where you're not allowed to be late at all, and there you are waiting around for the wedding, and the bride or the groom's not there, and it's 15 after, and one side of the family says, I can't believe it. I mean, court, it, timing is relative. I know it's, hard, it's scary to imagine a Presbyterian minister saying something's relative, but timing's relative. <laughs> and everybody has a sense that this is the right time and not this. God's sense of timing will always confound ours, no matter what culture you're from. His blessing never seems to come when you want it. His grace never operates according to our schedules and our timing. And I believe that what Jesus is doing when he looks at Jairus and he says, trust me, he's kind of looking over Jairus' head at all of us. And he says, basically here's what he's saying to the readers of the book of Mark. Do you remember chapter 4? He says, remember how there I try to teach you that my grace and love is compatible with going through storms, though you may not think so? Well, here I'm telling you that my grace and love are compatible with what seem to be to you unconscionable delays. Listen, it's not, I will not be hurried, but I love you anyway. It's, I will not be hurried because I love you. I know what I'm doing. And if you insist on imposing your absolutely objectively, universally right and true understanding of schedule and timing on me, you will never feel loved by me and it will be largely your fault. Hmm. So first of all, we see Jesus will not be hurried. And as a result, for almost everyone who has any relationship with Jesus, we often feel exactly like Jairus, that he's just delaying irrationally, unconscionably, inordinately, wrongly. So that's the first thing. But secondly... We see here all kinds of instruction that happens, all sorts of lessons that are learned because of this delay. It's very clear in the text itself that it's because of the delay that we learn so much about faith and about many other things. And in general, I would like to say to you that the delays of God, my experience, and I know most Christians' experience have had any experience with God, when you look back, it's the delays. Have, delays have taught us lessons that are priceless, lessons that are worth almost anything to learn, almost any price. What are they? Well, let me just suggest three that we see here, just three. I'm sure there's more than that. Three lessons we learn from the delay. The first lesson we learn here is that always, always, you will always both give and get from Jesus far more than you bargained for when you go to him for something. So whenever you go to Jesus for something, you will always get and give far more than you bargained to get and give. It never, it, it, the, the deal never works out the way you expect it at all. Like, for example, look at Jairus. He came to Jesus for a fever cure, not for a resurrection. He's getting a resurrection. He came thinking he was going to have to trust Jesus enough just, just to get home, hoping that somehow the, 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 baby, the child didn't die before he got home. But Jesus is demanding far more from him because he turns to him when his daughter has died from what it looks like because of the malpractice of Jesus, the great physician. And Jesus looks right into his eyes and says, trust me. Now that is a test of faith that, that, that was way beyond anything that when he first went to Jesus for, he thought he was going to have to meet. And then look at this woman. Let's look at the woman. This woman 
What did she really want? She was going to Jesus for something, but here's all she wanted. She wanted to touch and run, okay? She wanted to say, she wanted to go, I'm better. I'm out of here, all right? That's as simple as that, you know? Jesus won't have it. Jesus forces her to go public. Forces her to go public. Now, this is, by the way, very threatening because this is a woman who, because she has a, uh, uh, a blood flow, because of this, this problem, because it was blood, she was ceremonially unclean. Probably in that day and age, she was considered a cursed person because she couldn't get better, and very often that's how people looked at chronically ill people. And, and for her to touch a rabbi, she was ceremonially unclean. For her to touch a rabbi in public was breaking an enormous taboo. And therefore, it was a very frightening thing that Jesus does to her. But he insists on making her go public. Why? She needs it. This is far more than she wanted to give. Oh, my goodness, but it's going to be far more. She's going to get so much more than she wanted to get. Uh, See, she has a quasi-superstitious understanding of Jesus' power. She thinks the touch healed her. And Jesus' whole point is to get her out there so he can say, oh, no, 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 no. It's faith that healed you. And that is all the difference in the world between being a semi-superstitious person who got a bodily heal, uh, you know, bodily healing, and a life-transformed disciple of mine for all eternity. And Jesus is saying, look, don't come to me just to have your needs met. And that doesn't mean I won't ever meet any needs. Come to me for a life-transforming relationship with, with me. That's what you should be coming for. That's far more than she expected to get, and it's also far more than she expected to give. But here's, what, here's the first lesson. Summary. If you go to Jesus for anything, and I hope you do, I can guarantee, on the one hand, he will, he will get from you far more than you originally planned to give him. But he will give to you infinitely more than you dare ask or think, and infinitely more, by the way, than you give. A dealing with Jesus is always a great deal for you, not for him, never for him, as we will continue to see. That's the first lesson, that if you go to Jesus for anything, (laughs) you always both get and give far more than you bargain for. Now, secondly, though, a little closer to home here, we see in this delay Jesus teaching another lesson, and that is, that he, is a, that he is a God of grace, and that he completely rever- his grace reverses the values of the world. Do you know what he's doing here? His grace reverses the values of the world. Would you take a look at these two people? Jairus is a male in a society in which men had absolutely all the power. This is a female. Okay? Jairus is uh, the synagogue ruler. This woman is ceremonially unclean, hasn't been allowed to go to worship. This man is almost certainly rich. This woman, we know, is absolutely poor. She spent all of her money trying to get better. Here's a man at the very top of the social food chain. Here's a woman at the very bottom of the social food chain. And yet Jesus Christ turns a woman with zero, zero social, economic, capital, and power and gives her his full attention and treats her as if there's nothing else in the world but her and turns to a woman with zero status and power and makes a male civil and religious leader wait in the moment of his greatest need. You can wait outside, please. What is going on here? Why does he do this? Well, it's not unusual. If you go through the Bible, if you go through the Gospels, you will see over and over again these these pairs. Over and over again, you have inside 
these accounts of Jesus' life, you almost you realize how often you have a Pharisee and a publican, you have a religious leader and, and someone who is a woman, a fallen woman. Over and over again, you have an insider and an outsider, a, a racial, moral, economic, religious outsider and an insider. And, and whenever that happens, invariably, it's the outsider that Jesus connects to. Fast, quickly. Why? Because at the end of the book of Mark, we're going to know. We are going to know the cross. That the way up is down. That the way to get power is to give away power and serve. That the way to be clothed in the absolute eternal righteousness of God is to admit you have none. The way to have a great life is to be willing to die. The way to have a fulfilled life is to seek the fulfillment and happiness of others. The way to know who you are is to stop trying to figure out who you are and lose yourself in service to God and your neighbor. And that reverses the values. It reverses your values. Jesus does not come to people on the basis of pedigree or status. In fact, this woman's faith is quasi-superstitious. It's of a lower quality than Jairus' faith. And yet, in a crowd, isn't this great about Jesus? In a crowd, if anything, Jesus is more attracted to the people who are the most messed up and who have messed up the most. You You put Jesus in a crowd, and he gravitates to the people who are the most messed up and who messed up the most. See, it, it, listen, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. I don't care if you used to be on hell's paid staff. I don't care how far you have fallen. Jesus is, if anything, attracted to the people who are the most messed up and who have messed up the most. And as St. Paul puts it, famously and eternally, he says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He's chosen the lowly and despised things, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no one would boast in his presence. So the delay teaches us that God's grace is, a, is real grace. Jesus is, is a God of real grace, and he, that reverses the values of the world, reverses the values of the world about beauty and status and power, etc. But most poignantly of all, these delays, this delay teaches us that if God seems to be unconscionably delaying his grace. It's because there is some massively, massively crucial factor that you don't know. That there's some massively crucial factor that's unavailable to you. If God looks like he's really doing malpractice in your life, it's because there's some massively crucial fact that you just simply don't have, it's just not available to you. You say, what are, we, what, what, what are you talking about? Well, look here. As far as Jairus and the disciples are concerned, anybody else is concerned, what Jesus is doing is malpractice. It's just ridiculous to let a little girl die and deal with a woman who could easily have waited. But you and I know something, don't you? We know a couple of crucial facts. The first crucial fact we know that they don't know is that for Jesus Christ, to raise a girl from the dead and to cure a fever is no different. There's no more problem to raise her from the dead than to cure the fever. No problem at all. But we do know that there's an opportunity here to take a quasi-superstitious woman who's received a bodily healing and turn her into a life-transformed disciple for all eternity, and that opportunity has to be capitalized on right now. See, you and I can see that, but they can't see that. They can't see that at all. They have no idea. Now, is God, is Jesus delaying something in your life? Are you just ready to give up? Are you mad at him? Jesus is looking at you and saying, Jairus, oh, Jairus's, Jairus I. 
there's some massively crucial factor that you just don't have available. Trust me. Well, you know, listen, let me, this is, this is kind of, I have to be really careful because I imagine right now some, there's people in this room, people listening to this right now that actually are, uh, that if I sat down and sat and listened to the story of your life, we would both be saying, what in the world, why isn't God coming through? So I want to be very sensitive, but I want to say this. Let me just speak personally, but if the shoe fits, I hope everybody will put it on. When I look at the delays of God in my own life, I look back and I realize a great deal of my consternation has been the arrogance that I believe. I look at Jesus and say, okay, you're the eternal son of God. You've lived for all eternity. You created the universe. But why would you know any better than me how my life should be going? So there's a self-righteousness there. There's an arrogance there. Why should I know all the facts? How could I possibly know all the facts? I can't know all the facts. But I feel like I do. Elizabeth Lash Quinn is a scholar at uh, Syracuse. She's the daughter of Christopher Lash, the great uh, uh, philosopher and, and, and thinker. And she was doing a little cultural analysis and said this about our modern culture. She said, in our culture, we are taught that everything that is not us is there to be manipulated by us for our own ends. In our culture, we are taught that everything that is not us is there to be manipulated by us for our own ends. Now, that's already in my heart, no matter what our culture is. But, of course, she's saying that modern culture is, uh, uh, makes it even worse. And we feel like, why isn't everything going exactly the way I planned? And the answer is, uh, we're not God. And therefore, the self-righteousness that needs to be knocked out of our, ha- out of our heart, the, the self-centeredness that needs to be knocked out of our heart to a great degree, is knocked out of our heart by these delays. By these delays. So Jesus says, if it looks like I'm doing something that makes no sense, just figure that I have some facts that you don't have. Well, somebody says, all right, okay, 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 all right. Delays and lessons, but this is, trust him, sure, trust him. It's hard. I need more help than you're giving me, all right? I got one more point to the sermon. Let's try this. I think there is something here that uh, I think there's help here. Not an answer for why he's delaying exactly the things in your life he's delaying. And yet, a great deal of help in dealing with the things you're facing in your life. The weakness of Jesus. Remember I mentioned the fact that uh, it says in verse 30, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. Now, this is unique in all of the gospel literature, in all the accounts of Jesus' life. There's no other place where we see that for her to get strong, he has to get weak. And uh, uh, one of the reasons why it's unique is because when you see him dealing with far bigger problems than this, he has enough power for them. He dealt with a hurricane and didn't even work up a sweat. He didn't do an incantation. He didn't, uh, uh, you know, call on a higher power. We talked about this. Then last week, he dealt with an army of demons, literally an army, legion. And he didn't need an incantation. He didn't, you know, stay, stand back. He didn't roll up his sleeves. He, just, he, he could handle it. Now, if you can handle a legion of demons and if you can handle a hurricane, why in the world would it tax his strength to heal this woman? And I don't think it had to happen. I think both to him and to us, it's a sign of something. A sign of what? Well, let's, let's, let's go to the climax of this incredible story. The plot has thickened excruciatingly because even though the little girl's dead, Jesus looks at the, hus- the father and says, I'm coming anyway. So they come. 
And when they go in, everybody's warning and wailing. Of course, there would have been professional mourners there. Uh, it would have been very, very loud. And Jesus walks in and says, she's really just sleeping. Now, this, by the way, has confused some people. Because they say, oh, so maybe this is just a resuscitation, not a resurrection. But, of course, if you go, uh, for example, to Luke's uh, version of this, Luke and Matthew both treat this. It's a, it's a very famous uh, event that Luke says in Luke chapter 8, verse 22, when Jesus heals her, her spirit returned to her. Now, everybody understood. The early church understood. Jesus understands. She's dead. Uh, she's not just apparently dead. She's dead. Then why does he make that reference to sleep? Here's why. They laugh at him, but it doesn't matter. He goes in, and he sits down, and he takes her by the hand, and he says two things to her. The first is this word, talitha, talitha. And this, of course, is translated, literally, it means little girl. But that does not get across the sense of what, this, what he is saying to her. This is a pet name. This is a diminutive pet name. You might perhaps translate it little lady, but it's much more likely, that since this was the kind of name that a mother would use with a little girl, probably the best translation I've run across is honey. This is Jesus taking her by the hand and saying, honey. And the second thing he says to her is kum, which means arise, be, get, be resurrected. No, it's a word that just means wake up, get up. And therefore, Jesus is doing to her what her parents would do on a sunny day. This is, the, this is the word of a parent who loves the child and who comes in on a sunny morning, sits down, and takes her hand, and what he's doing is he sits down, he takes her hand, and here's what he says, honey, it's time to get up. That's the translation. Honey, it's time to get up. And she does. This teaches us two things that almost no other story teaches us in the same way. Number one, look at his power. Again, there's no incantation. There's no calling on a higher power. There's no rolling up his sleeves. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, Elijah raises the son of a widow from the dead, remember? But he stretches himself out on him, and he blows, he breathes into him, and does all this stuff. Jesus is facing a greater foe than the hurricane. Oh, you know that. He is facing a greater foe than demons. He is facing death the most implacable, inexorable enemy of the human race, death. And such is his power that if he, he holds her by the hand, he just gently lifts her up right through it. Right through it. See, honey, get up. Death. And when Jesus Christ says, if I have you by the hand, even death itself is nothing but a good night's sleep. Even death itself can only make you better. If I have you by the hand, that is what my power is like. Such is my power. So that's the first thing we learned. Just, honey, get up. Out of death, he just pulls it right through, just gently. But the second thing we learn is his love. This is the ultimate parent. You know, when you were little, if your parent had you by the hand, you felt everything was okay. But, of course, you were totally wrong. <laughs> Because, for example, there are bad parents, and even the best parents are imperfect. Even the best parents can slip, by the way. Even the best parents can lose the kid. Even the best parents do th wrong things, make wrong choices. When you, when, when you had your parents' hand, you felt everything was okay, but you were wrong. But this is the ultimate parent. 
who has us by the hand and will bring us through the darkest night. And to see the Lord of the universe, the one whose hands scattered the stars like seeds, taking me by the hand and saying, honey, it's time to get up. Let me ask you a question. Why would you want to hurry somebody like this? Why would you want to hurry somebody this powerful and this loving that he treats us this tenderly? Why would you want to hurry somebody like this? Well, you say, but how can he do that? How can he hold us by the hand in spite of our deserts, in spite of our merits, despite of our performance and status, in spite of how much we've messed up? He can hold us by the hand. How can he do that? And the answer, of course, is the weakness. 2 Corinthians 13.4, where Paul says, he was crucified in weakness that we could live in God's power. He became weak that we could be strong. He lost his father's hand on the cross. You know that. Listen, there is nothing more frightening for a little child to lose the hand of the parent in a crowd or in the dark. But this is nothing compared to what Jesus did. He lost his father's hand on the cross. He died for us. He went into the tomb so we could be raised out of it. He was crucified outside the camp and became unclean so that our uncleanness could be dealt with and we could be clean and whole. He lost the Father's hand so we could know that if he has us by the hand, he will never, ever, 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 ever forsake us. And that's the reason, by the way, why that Palm Sunday collect is it the way it is. Thomas Cranmer's full collect was this on Palm Sunday, O Lord, teach us to imitate the example of his patience that we might be made partakers of his resurrection. Because you see, Jesus Christ knew the only way to the crown was through the cross. The only way to the resurrection was through death. The only way to power was through weakness. And the delays of Jesus teach us that. They just teach it. Not only does they teach us, only through our own weakness will we develop the humility and the grace and the wisdom. Only through delays will we become the people we ought to be. But Jesus experienced the ultimate delay. He says, Father, is there any way we could just go to salvation and I don't have to go through this? It was called the Garden of Gethsemane. Is there any way we could just sort of cut to the, to the resurrection without the cross? Cut to salvation of the world without the cross? And the answer was no. Oh, let us be conformed to his patience that we might be made partakers in the resurrection. Are you trying to hurry Jesus? Take him by the hand. And let him do what he wants to do. He loves us completely. He knows what he's doing. It's time to wake up. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that uh, you have uh, loved us so tenderly and so powerfully. And uh, we perhaps no place do we see this more uh, poignantly than in this story. We thank you that death is a defeated enemy. We thank you that those of us who face death, those of, all of us will, but those of us who are facing it with the loved ones, those of us who are facing it now, we pray that you would show us that you have us by the hand, that even death itself is something that you will just lift us right through like a nice night's sleep. We thank you that you love us like that, and you are that powerful. And we pray that knowing that, we might have help when we want to hurry you not to do so. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.